0: This, if these are data, we have them right here. It's very easy. If these are <laughs> That was, are the, that was the intent. <laughs> if the... Live. Five. Four. Chicken. Roof. Purple. Hey, hello, 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 hello!
1: And welcome to Center Ed Teaching and... Thank you for joining me in that chorus of hellos to our studio audience. The two voices that you heard joining me were Faith. Hello. Welcome back, Faith, and Roberta. Hello, hello. And the voice you didn't hear, but the beard that you heard rustling in the background is the one and only Brian. Hi, (laughs) y'all. Very enthusiastic to be here. So this is our last pod of the season, and to do that, we thought we would tackle an issue that's been gaining more and more traction in New York City, and actually, Across the country to leave you with something to chew on for the next few months, mm. um, and that is the New York City Chancellor and Mayor uh, pushing for integration and anti-bias training in schools. Um, so to start this conversation, we want to give listeners a little bit of background information into the New York City school system and the problem of segregation within the school system. Um, so New York City schools are among the most segregated in the country. Um, half of the city's um, 1,600 plus schools are over 90% black and Hispanic, which in academic terms actually would frame those schools as what are called apartheid schools because the segregation is so bad. Two thirds of the city's most segregated public schools are all black, uh, concentrated in isolated black areas in central Brooklyn and Queens. Um, To give you an overview of the makeup of New York City's student population, about 16.1% of the students are Asian American, uh, 26% African American, Um, Hispanic population is about 40%, um, and the white student population makes up about 15%. In addition to kind of these segregated figures, New York City, like a lot of urban areas, has application schools or select schools that are considered the kind of jewels of the public school system. Um, There are eight select schools in New York City, and to give you an idea of how those break down, um, three of the schools, we'd like to give you the demographic breakdown of them. So Stuyvesant High School is uh, 73.5% Asian American, uh, 0.7% Black, uh, 2.8% Hispanic, and 17.8% White. The Bronx High School of Science is 65.6% Asian, uh, 2.5% Black, 6.2% Hispanic, and 23.1% white, and Brooklyn Tech is 61.3% Asian American, 6.4% African American, 7.1% Hispanic, and 23.1% white. Um, (laughs) So I know that's a long laundry list, but for those of you listening, we wanna make sure that you understand kind of the context within which we're having this conversation. Um, So given these numbers that I've just taken (laughs) forever to list, I, how do we understand these numbers? How, what are they representative of? Um, I mean, we're talking about segregation, so maybe we're making an implication there. But what are some other ways that we can maybe understand these statistics and grapple with them?
2: Yeah, I think if we had the answer to that, uh, we would be able to solve a lot of problems in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. and these are really challenging because on the one hand, um, you know, kids going into those schools, they take a test and they're admitted. The test seems to be an objective measurement. It's a multiple choice test. Uh, and so anybody who wants to, you know, if the, if, the, if the philosophy is that anybody who wants to can apply, and if they are smart enough and if they are knowledgeable enough, then they'll pass the test and they'll get in, therefore it is an objective uh, process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that, that is a, a, a pretty sort of like narrow perspective to have when you consider all of the Um, attributes or traits or mindsets that someone needs to have in order to become, Mm -hmm. to get into a position to think, I can take the test or I know when to apply for it. Uh, And I'll just give an example from my own personal Mm -hmm. life. You know, I have a middle schooler um, and I was looking at um, some possible specialized middle school programs. Um, Some middle school programs start in seventh grade and I felt like I was pretty on top of things. You know, over the summer and into the fall, I had like sent some emails out and I had done research to find what are some of the schools that um, were were looking for 7th graders and were hiring and had special application programs. Um, It took a lot of time and it took a lot of energy. There wasn't a single place that I could search that had that information. Mm -hmm. And then when I had to write to people individually and everybody had their own different um, application process and then when, um, so then I moved on with my life and then when I went back to check on things, I had realized that we had missed the deadline for for every single school that Mm -hmm. was doing middle school stuff. And I felt really uh, locked out of the system. And I'll say that, like, I'm an attentive parent and an educator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, if anybody should be able to have like those access points, like, mm-hmm. I thought that like I would be fine um, in doing that. Um, but I missed like several deadlines by a couple of weeks. Um, they were doing interviews by the time that I had found out about about it, and and so. There's a lot that you have to be able to know and that you have to put in place in order to um, be in a situation to to put that application in, and not everybody has um, all of those research re- mm-hmm. resources. And dare I say, not everyone has the privileges um, mm-hmm. that are that are aligned to that. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we could look at these and and I think I I want to be careful in our conversation that this um, to be critical that we don't have more integration is not necessarily that we're that a, a critique of like the school mm. or the school's leadership but rather like a critique of a system mm-hmm. that isn't providing um, equal access to all people it isn't saying that anybody who's there doesn't deserve to be there but rather that there are a lot of people who deserve to be there who aren't getting that chance mm-hmm.
0: you mentioned that the um, selective schools have an exam to mm-hmm. enter multiple-choice exam um, and um, you know if Attentive listeners will remember our our conversation about standardized testing Mm -hmm. and as we sort of picked apart like if we're going to put so much weight behind a measurement tool Mm -hmm. we better be really confident that that tool measures the thing we want it to do so to the extent that Mm -hmm. the selective schools um, exam um, I would wonder what does it measure or what is it meant to measure Um, and those are separate questions for me. And even if we can come to some consensus about what it ought to measure, now we need to think about, you know, does it actually do the job? Um, And if so, then then we're settling in on a tool that we can use um, and feel better about using for uh, um, making some determinations about enrollment. Mm -hmm. But ahead of that, it's really tough to um, to say like, yeah, here here's this one standard that everyone um, you, you, you perform on it or you don't. I mean, there's the old the old satirical cartoon about standardized tests where it's a bunch of animals lined up, a fish, an elephant, a monkey, a bird, mm-hmm. uh, a snake, and says, so all right, everybody takes the same test. Now climb that tree.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so yeah. uh, uh, standardized tests have their own um, uh, pitfalls. And when we use them to determine enrollment, uh, then it starts to get, you know, high stakes, to say the least.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think but what you've both been saying, Brian and Roberta, just makes me think of, we don't know what we don't know, and that's what I really think about, Roberto. when you were mentioning um, your journey with um, missing those deadlines, that part of yeah. it, I just thought about, that's right, you would think, y- you felt confident you were on top of it, and I would imagine a number of yeah. people that aren't in education in any way, mm-hmm. like they're trying to find their way across a number of barriers to understand the process, understand how it works, and they might think, for instance, that, well, it's a test, it's fair, it's right you know, and what is it that they don't know? And what is it that we don't know about these statistics just looking at them?
1: Well, so maybe given what you've said there, this is a poor question to ask and maybe a little too inflammatory. But I mean, is there a narrative that these statistics tell Mm -hmm. us um, that is one that we uh, passively agree with or that we actually want to call out? Because if these are considered the select and the elite high schools and there is lack Mm -hmm. of representation, Mm -hmm. is that representation an issue of the system and the way that it differentiates and puts students into different schools, or are we saying that the test is actually reflective of students? And I find this debate kind of falling to the wayside because you've had a lot of parents who have recently protested this idea of you know reserving 20 percent of the seats for students who just barely missed the cut on the test if they're from a low-income background as a better effort to to integrate schools i'm getting lost where i'm trying to go with this but the idea go ahead sorry
2: no i i just want to build on what you're saying because the parent outrage like we're like on a, on a whole as citizens we're um all for integration and we're all for like everybody should have equal access until someone else's equal access has a opportunity begins to threaten my child's ability to to succeed in that space or perceived or Or my perceived right and so and i'll make a connection to the opt-out movement and the common core the um we've had Um, students of color all over um, our city struggling to pass things like the regents exams Mm -hmm. for you know decades Mm -hmm. Um, it was only a reason to stop taking the test when affluent families Mm -hmm. started seeing their kids not pass state tests or not pass with proficiency or highly Mm -hmm. proficient scores when the tests began to when they um, elevated their expectations and now all of a sudden the exams are showing like, oh, kids who are coming from more affluent families um, are getting scores of like ones and twos on an exam that they would typically get threes and fours on or are not quite making college readiness. Um, and that's when you see the big outcry for like opt out of the test. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when thousands of people before that were failing the exam, well you just have to like try harder and pick yourself up by by your bootstraps. So we're we're all for um, and I'll say this very generally, right, generally speaking, but we're all for integration. Mm-hmm. We're all for, like, everyone should have an equal opportunity. Um, but I, but I have to make sure that my kid is getting theirs. And if something is going to impact the ability that my kid mm-hmm. is not going to get into the school because somebody who didn't earn their spot is going to get in there, that's when we're going to see pushback. And I can see, like, I can understand feeling that way. Um, I think, you know, to, and, and I think that it is part of that feeling that goes um, back you know, decades around, and, uh, and created mythologies about, like, this person only got that job because of affirmative action, or this person only got that position because they didn't really merit that position, it was given to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's very difficult to have these conversations and sort of, like, be in an open and honest way, because on the one hand, you know, we're sort of saying, yes, I want what's best for everybody, but also I'm going to get mine. I have to protect mine. And we're okay, uncomfortable maybe, but okay if somebody doesn't get theirs um, as long as it's going to protect mine.
1: Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I think keeps coming up for me as a problem in that debate is a lot of this parent outcry has been, well, I've spent lots of money tutoring my child to do well on this test, and it's almost this ability that because I can spend money, I can manipulate public institutions to my desire in a way that disproportionately affects others that might come from low-income communities or be students of color.
2: And that's sort of like where it's so problematic to talk about the... The admissions process as being a meritocracy mm-hmm. because it's only a merit. Everybody's only on an equal footing if everybody can get the same access to to high level tutors. If everybody can. Can work with if everybody is a legacy. If everybody has a brother or sister who went there, that that, right. that like if we're really testing everybody as in like a pretest, like no one's ever seen it before, yeah. like let's have that conversation. But that's not what's happening. To your point, people are getting tested when they go from preschool into they're getting tutoring from preschool into kindergarten, from kindergarten mm-hmm. <laughs> into you know from from elementary school into middle school and then middle school. And a lot of what's happening is that that they are setting where we have these. Pretty regimented and institutionalized tracking programs, where this school gets you into that school, gets Mm -hmm. you into that school, and and there it's fierce. I mean, it's it's you know the the it's like the downside of choice. Mm -hmm. It you know it's this competition that Mm -hmm. is that is so fierce that um, people have to invest so 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 much money so that their kids can get a certain score in a multiple choice test. Um, I'm not sure that we're really looking at what those kids. Um, really know and can do Um, but I also think that it goes to reinforce an idea that these specialized high schools are particularly better Mm -hmm. than non specialized high schools that they're offering necessarily something that you can't get somewhere else and I don't I I think that that might be an assumption that gets made as well Um, they do well because they have highly high achieving students let's put those high achieving students across schools those schools would also do well I, I don't know that it's necessarily because they, those schools have something figured out in terms of like the magic of magic of teaching and learning that nobody else has access to I think what they have access to is an exclusive community of people who are all high achieving mm-hmm.
0: uh-huh. and within the highly achieving like um, highly motivated as sure. well um, uh, if a student has the, uh, the desire and the motivation and the support structure to apply to these schools they are you know, more likely to be successful Mm -hmm. in school and um, there's a a notion that uh, that test alone as the sorting mechanism won't measure that. Um, And um, if we have students who have come from historically underserved communities, populations, schools, um, but say have perfect attendance um, and can show value-add over the years, can we not say that this is the sort of person we would want to give the uh, opportunity to go to the best schools in the city air quotes around that yeah. audience um, but to
1: the best schools in the city um so if I can actually and I, I do want to move off the selective schools and talk about some mm-hmm. of the other schools for a second but just to hang on this for a moment because when De Blasio originally ran for mayor he ran on an integration plan. That the selective high schools would determine from students that graduated at the top of their class in middle schools um, that are, had the highest GPAs, so that even if the lower schools were segregated, essentially taking the model from Texas, you would create a more diverse high school because where the student population would be um, pulled from would be more diverse, right? Because right? it wouldn't be based on this test that is a mm-hmm. metric that can, in some ways, be paid for. Is that something that's actually possible in New York City at this point? Would there be the political will? Because I find it interesting that with his resurgence in this interest, that that is not being talked about, and rather it's still using this test.
2: I, mean, I think it's interesting to think about sort of like the top 3%, the top 5% get mm-hmm. into a pool. And so it's about like being the best in the school that you're in. And mm-hmm. that gives everybody an opportunity to, to play. I don't know. I think that this is so troubling because on the one hand, I can see the merits of having this selective process. Um, you know, I, I, my kid is a high achiever. He, he, he finishes quickly. Mm-hmm. Things come easily to him. Um, you know, I'd like him to. I'd like to see him more challenged in his school, and I'd like to see him with a peer group that could challenge him academically. Um, I'm concerned when things are too easy for long periods of time, but it's impossible to, to for teachers to differentiate across six or seven or ten grade levels. <laughs> when you're talking about the range of performance and so I'm troubled by both like a belief in and this is just like very vulnerable like Mm -hmm. being honest right but like I'm troubled by having a belief in integration and that we're all better when we're around and so value that I have for Mm -hmm. myself it's a value that I have for my child and for my other kids um, that like he's going to be more successful in his life when he knows how to work and, and get along with people from all um, socioeconomic backgrounds, mm-hmm. from all uh, cultural backgrounds, from all, you know, economic backgrounds, mm-hmm. like that, that it's the diversity and the mobility of being able to be around all sorts of people and learn from all different kinds of learning styles that's going to position him better in life than any sort of, like, the name of the school that he went to.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, like, that's a value. And also making sure that, like, kids are getting their academic needs met, both Students who are high achieving and also students who are struggling. You put a struggling student in in a quick moving class, like keep up, like that's not a recipe for that child's success either. Um, I think the challenge is that like we're not talking about um, today's present situation as an isolated, unique event. We have to look at it from and historical context. Um, if we look at just these numbers, then it would be very easy for somebody who is sort of like looking at, well, the numbers say that only 0.7% of mm-hmm. in high school is black. Like why aren't black students achieving? A- a- and mm-hmm. this must th- a- and there must be something wrong with, with, with those students. They must not be smart enough to get into the school. I find that like so ludicrous and offensive. So we mm-hmm. have to be able to look at these numbers and say, there's a problem with the system that we have. Um, and, and whether it's intentional or not intentional, it's a, it's a problem and it needs to be fixed. Yeah. But we can't look at it in isolation. We have to l- understand like, where what's the history here? Where is it happening? And how do these cycles um, happen year after year after year?
1: Yeah. And so I'm actually going to pick that up to take us to the next part in the conversation. And, and Faith, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Part of what's being proposed in addition to these integration efforts is anti-bias training in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea that, okay, so we need to train people working with our students to go against maybe their, um, first reactions, which there is some kind of implicit bias in. Um, is this something that's going to get at the issues Roberta was just talking about? Um, I I, I don't know, I guess, what are your thoughts on this in the program?
3: I mean, I think that, um, it it makes me think about if we're sitting around talking and I think this is one of the big issues going on, even just conversations about politics or Mm -hmm. anything um, happening, whether it's on social media or in person. And you say like, um, Hey Brian, are you a racist? I am. And (laughs) that's a rare thing, right? That someone's going to say that because I (laughs) I don't think I am right. Like, well, what do you mean? Um, So unless you're at a place like you are, Brian, where you can (laughs) say I am, I've, and I've questioned a lot I've asked a lot I've, I've thought a lot about it right um, you're going to people are aware that um, it's not a good thing to be a racist mm-hmm. so I'm not a racist what do you mean I don't have a bias I'm not prejudiced what do you mean um, and so I think that that's where the training comes in that's so important now I don't know what that training would look like but there's something about awareness and self reflection and being willing and, and being in a setting where you're able to be vulnerable and where you are able to say actually, yeah, I have something against this group of people, or I've had these experiences in the past, and it really makes me think X about these kids, these kids who can't do it, mm-hmm. whatever it is that, that, that that's there. Um, so it seems essential to me just to provide something so people question, so people ask themselves these things. And we ask each other, I
2: yeah. think.
1: Yeah, I think you give a nice sketch for what it should look like in the terms of people being able to have this vulnerable space, but building off some of the stuff that Roberta said, the need to look at um, discrimination, right, and inequality Mm -hmm. from a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you do that, does that always create that vulnerable space for people, right? Because that might be the facts and the way that the world operated. But I could very well see where you have a teacher who said, well, I, w- I, like, I wasn't alive in the 60s. Like, right. I, I right. wasn't promoting right. Jim Crow. And so now I like.
3: How am well, I responsible? Why do I have to do something about it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a difference between um, uh, racism and privilege. Yes. Right? That's to say, you may not be actively out there uh, enforcing Jim Crow, um, mm-hmm. but are you benefiting from mm-hmm. those who did before you? And if you are, then what is your responsibility as a moral human being and a responsible citizen of this country? Um, and that's the sort of the wider question that I think we need to, to get into. Folk who, who really bristle up the term white privilege, and mm. Rupert mentioned mm-hmm. privilege earlier. But there are plenty of people out there who really like, viciously recoil when they hear that word. Um, well, for me, there's a conversation that needs to be had about historical perspective. Um, that um, you know we, we, we as white people and all of us here on the table are um, enjoy many many privileges and advantages by virtue of you know who we are born at or what we are born looking like mm-hmm. and where we were right. born right. Um, and if without a historical perspective on it um, it's impossible to start to acknowledge and understand the situation but we have a sort of a rough and perhaps, you know, gnarly analogy here, I'll, I'll, I'll say, uh, my father was born in, in Prague in 1933, so he lived through the Second World War as a child, um, and uh, that really affected him, as you might imagine, mm-hmm. but I didn't get that for a long time. When I was growing up, you know, he's a very stern taskmaster and would say things like, if you don't turn off the lights when you leave the room, the Germans will find you. And I always thought, what a kook. And then once I started to get a little bit more perspective on what his experience must have been like to be a child in a war zone and the PTSD that was involved with that, mm-hmm. now I have a better understanding of his cookie behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of having a l- more perspective, particularly about um, systems of oppression that exist in this country, then I think we can start to acknowledge the systems of benefits that mm-hmm. were reaped by some.
2: One of the things that I... I'm finding interesting about the conversation around the segregation in schools and specialized schools is um, that beyond ethnicity, um, there are a lot of things that help schools to be successful or not successful that can demonstrate like um, the quality of the school. And we look to things like graduation rate and performance on exams as a way to see those indicators of success. But one of the primary factors that leads to those indicators is not ethnicity, but rather are um, issues around like special needs and ELL populations, and I think that like the office of enrollment is a powerful office they are like, somewhat invisible, um, but the placement offices um, around um, placing students um, m- maybe outside of the specialized schools, um, but but. You know when you you put your little form in and you've chosen your 12 schools and it's really the placement office that's looking to to make these matches Um, and students who don't get selected get placed Mm -hmm. and and those placements happen at the office of enrollment and they're not necessarily accountable to anybody for the decisions that they make so for example i'm sitting at one of the schools that we work in looking at their senior class trying to um, analyze out, do a little couple protocols around um, what, their, what their year-end uh, adequate yearly progress might look like mm-hmm. at the end of the year. They have roughly 100 students in their senior class. That's what state um, evaluation is gonna be looking at, is like the number of students in their senior class and how do those students do on their English Regents, on their uh, math Regents, and on their graduation data. Well, 30% of their students, 30 out of 100, uh, have an IEP um, so they're considered special ed. Another 17 to 20% were considered uh, were, were else. So you're looking now at almost 40% because there's some some uh, overlap mm-hmm. between those mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. groups mm-hmm. Um, But you're looking at almost 40% of their student population that has some kind of a special need mm-hmm. and another 10 or 15% of the population 10 to, 10 to 15 students who, who they've never met because the students never actually showed up for school a single day in the four years, or the two years, or the three years that they were assigned to, to attend. So the best the school can do in terms of their performance um, on the outside is is something like a 60 to 65%, a 60 to 65% graduation rate would actually be to graduate you know almost 100% of, <laughs> of the current on-level uh, students. But um, we're not really talking about um, what would it look like if we had, you know, there's there's nothing close to those numbers um, in specialized high schools around students with IEPs or 504 plans. There's nothing close to that for students who um, are English language learners. We put so much stock in what the tests say, but they don't really represent the quality of the school. Mm-hmm. And if we had um, more integration across schools around um, populations for special education and ELs, if those students, if there were 10% across a variety Mm -hmm. of schools as opposed to 30% in one and 5 to 7% in a host of others. I think that we'd see a whole different perspective on where schools were really getting um, the most, where students were able to perform the most um, in their classrooms, where teachers were able to provide the most. Um, And I think it's a real shame. My my second son is a special needs child and we're in the process there of finding a placement for him Mm -hmm. and it really looks like you know, he might go to um, a school where there are only other kids who have special needs. And that's a real challenge for me because I really firmly believe that we're going to do better when we're around lots of different kinds of people. We're going to do, he's going to do better as a special needs child with students who do not have special needs and students who do. With students where there's always somebody a little bit better and there's always somebody like, re- always somebody right ahead of you and always somebody right behind you. Those are the places where kids are going to learn the
0: most. And I, I think if you're, you're starting to get at like, this notion of like, what, what is the purpose of a school? Right, yes. right, and what is the office of the school? And uh, you're sort of hinting at the, the hidden curriculum, mm-hmm. which is the social learning that goes yeah. on in the school. And if the office of the school is not merely to impart facts um, or skills mm-hmm. that are related to uh, traditional academic subjects, mm-hmm. um, then you would want a diversity of and a, and a large number of diverse human interactions mm-hmm. within the social setting of the school mm-hmm. in order to um, help folk develop into you know, people who can exist
1: in the world where there are others who are different than them. Yeah. Uh, well yeah so I thought you were going to go a different direction I with could. that and, I'm I'm I, <laughs> <laughs> and I think what you said 100% right but what I want to remind is that we're not just talking about school as in providing an education we're actually talking about public institutions right. mm-hmm. and who is the public mm-hmm. right like if you think about in a sense that for you to access a public in- institution you have to meet certain requirements to then be able to get that mm-hmm. there seems something undemocratic about that right like to say that you need to per- perhaps vote right like in a country and you have to take a test to be able to prove that you're allowed to vote. And I'm not trying to say that those are exactly the same thing, but you're talking about a school system that has separated what schools are able to offer what and only limiting access to certain schools, to certain people, as opposed to saying that the district has these responsibilities to all the schools to teach English language learners, to teach students with needs. And so you get these pockets of schools.
2: I think one of the things that I would like to see shift, um, in the city's policy is that right now elementary and middle schools are primarily um, segregated by districts and so all, when you consider that the schools the segregation in schools is primarily as res- is primarily in um, response to segregation of housing um, and so mm-hmm. when you're looking you're looking because you go an elementary school and a middle school you go to school close to where you live, and because our city is, um, is segregated because of economics, mm-hmm. um, and because of historical institutionalized housing racism, policy. and housing policies, then we have massive amounts of schools that are also segregated. They're not segregated like it's not their fault, it's like their circumstance. Everybody, you know, because our school districts are organized by neighborhoods, our, then what we see are like affluent neighborhoods and and poor neighborhoods. And we see neighborhoods that have different trends um, demographically and then that's what the makeup of their schools look like. So it isn't until high school that kids can go to any school in the city regardless of district. Most of those district choices are happening all the way up through eighth grade. So my feeder school isn't necessarily mm-hmm. those that's high, right. but it's not, it's not necessarily those high specialized mm-hmm. schools. And in most districts, we do not have coverage of a, of a high achieving school or of a specialized high school in every district. Mm-hmm. Let's look at these districts, right? So, what do we have? Um, you have one in Brooklyn, one in all of Brooklyn, one in the Bronx, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, two is that two in Brooklyn? Um, you have, uh, sorry, you have the three here, right? Stuyvesant, Bronx, and Brooklyn. So you have, you know, three major schools, three of the the highly specialized schools. There, you know, a single school in mm. in in a borough, when when those boroughs have five, six, or seven districts, right. there's no way that we're going to be able to see diversity when if we don't see specialized high schools across the board. There isn't one in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, my son has to go to school outside of his district, and and I had to like figure out funny ways to getting to do that um, in order to become sort of like in the pool of kids who might go here or might go there. So I think that that's something that we really have to consider is like a, in, what are, in what ways are we saying like, oh gosh, we have this problem, but we're actually setting up that problem from the get-go. I'm not uh, advocating that young children go to school an hour and a half away from, their li- from where they live. I'm advocating that we have more right. specialized schools or more schools that fi- fit uh, diversity of learning needs across districts or that we change our district patterns to things that are more about like your local radius for example You know one of this the schools that are in my district are farther away from schools that are the closest schools to me Are in another district, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, And so like what does it look like if you're doing more like radius from your home? You know within a two mile radius of your home or something like that But I just I don't find that we have an equal distribution of of these schools that give kids access to even that It's a possibility that I could go there Well, I think then that comes back
3: around to what you were saying earlier about basically like I need to make sure that I get what I need for my kid. I need to, I, you know, I'm going to protect my kid, right? And part of it is, is that scarcity, Matt, yeah. that you're talking about. Like, that if, if it's not... I just keep ha- having this picture of if all of the schools aren't being, like, built up, right, and it's just some in, in various places that a lot of people can't get to or you wouldn't want to have your kid travel that far and home it can really affect like your home life Mm -hmm. and and many things right um if if that's not available then there is like a pie and Mm -hmm. i need to get a piece of it
2: that's right that's it's not just it's not just
3: you know that's how people begin to feel exactly Exactly.
1: yeah i mean and i think what illuminates that really well is district three which is on the edge of the upper west side and Harlem has had discussions of possible integration or redrawing of those Mm -hmm. district lines, which Mm -hmm. would make the schools more integrated. And there has been significant parent pushback to this. Mm -hmm. And and I want to use that as a frame to talk about what this means for New York, but also kind of writ large in the country. Because right now, we have resegregation of schools throughout the US, right? We have independent school districts that are emerging in the South for the explicit purpose Um, for sectioning off a particular group of students in different schools. There are other urban communities that have the similar segregation within their schools that New York has. And so what does this mean for the body politic that our institutions are segregated? That there isn't something to force that integration and to make that happen? What does that mean for as the country continues to mature and students continue to go to segregated institutions? What kind of political identity is going to be developed. I realize that's a lot of questions and a lot of unclear words there, but...
2: Well,
0: I i don't know. I'll throw this one out there. I know a guy I went to high school with um, who every Halloween wears the same costume. Um, it is an immaculately tailored uh, Confederate general uniform.
2: Oh, my.
0: Yeah. Uh, unapologetic. Um, in fact, very thrilled about it. Um, and I asked him a real simple question one time, which is, what do your black friends say when you wear that? Um, and he hemmed and hawed for a little while and it's understandable, but the bottom line is, and he got this, was that he doesn't have any black friends. All right? And I don't think it's required that everybody have friends from across all of the different, uh, you know, mm-hmm. vectors of identification or whatever. But when you don't have any black friends it seems to me you may think it's okay to wear a confederate general's uniform um, and you know again it's like a very little uh, Tom Friedman, Malcolm gladwell sort of example mm-hmm. there but um, mm-hmm. yeah I can't help but think that um, when you don't have um, some bit of empathy for, the, for anybody uh, or for some other person um, then you may do things that uh, don't seem to yeah. support their existence. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I think, too, um, there was a lot of conversation about this after the 2016 election, um, but sort of a, a belief from, I think, like the, the to use a, a, a term that I did not coin, but like the democratic liberal elite, right, the East Coast liberal elite, yeah. um, often, I think, connects with with this this sort of like Manhattanite mm-hmm. uh, viewpoint, um, or, or certainly the the viewpoint of um, folks who've gone to school and value education and want their kids to have the very, very mm-hmm. best of what there is. But that there's sort of this feeling of like we, we thought we were doing better when we elected Barack Obama, mm-hmm. um, but but maybe we realized that like we're not quite as far as we thought that we were in terms of um, breaking down barriers between. Um, ethnicity between equality, um, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of education to do. I think especially along the lines of privilege, um, and 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 straight down to um, feeling as if my kid deserves more than someone else's kid. And and I think that it's a it's a nice opportunity for people to to look in the mirror and really ask themselves like what am I what am I concerned about what am I afraid of. Um, but we have to confront these issues, and though it may be scary to talk about them, there was an SNL skit a couple uh, a couple months ago. They were talking about a difficult situation, and each time each person went to say something, they were like, "Careful,
3: <laughs> I, just Wait think, a minute. I, I just think, Hold I just think,
2: <laughs> maybe like these are hard conversations." Um, but I think that if we're not, if we're not modeling them, if we're not trying to say, like, what are the different issues and what are the different things that we're feeling and looking at it from a historical perspective, looking at it from an educational perspective, a sociological perspective, um, then where can, where can you have these conversations, you know? So that's right. And I think, Matt, from
3: um, the, what you just said and the conversation we're having now, it just makes me lost my train
1: of thought. <laughs> um, I, one thing that, like, I just think this, this reinforces is the locality of politics. And mm-hmm, it's very mm-hmm. easy to buy into a national narrative yeah. of integration and equality for all. But when we yeah. get down to the ground floor level, right, New York, that is often seen as like this liberal bastion um, of the U.S. can fall short. And sometimes these competing metacra- mer- meritocratic narratives, right, the pull yourselves up by your bootstrap, that is, you know, so often told as mm-hmm. the, the the American identity. Um, outweighs this idea that we need to provide equal of opportunity for all and i I know for me personally i'm concerned that anti-bias training without integrative efforts Mm. almost creates a way to say we know this is wrong and we want to acknowledge it but we don't actually want to
2: do anything anything about it i mean i think that if the anti-bias training does anything to like support segregated like not to support segregation but like to um to help Create a, a force of adults who recognize the institutional racism that their students are a part of, even if they're not doing anything to make a change, like mm-hmm. that's a win um, because it can cha- make an impact on how those kids are treated in their schools um, and can impact a teacher or a school leader's perspective of, like, wow, I didn't realize that I had this implicit bias until I went through this training and I could see things from this perspective. Now I do, and it's going to change my, my actions. But I think to your point, without without changes to the system, it's a little bit like Starbucks closing for one day and then reopening again and having somebody else a place again right? Like like talk is cheap um, and throw some money at it and let some people be quiet and then go back to business as usual. Um, that's not a recipe for transformation. Um,
3: I think the word transformation that that's so key because it I'm thinking about like our individual transformation as we look at ourselves and think through these, issues and 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 get perspective from those around us as well like brian asking that question um of your friend Mm -hmm. um right so having people ask like hey i've noticed that this this seems to be something that you say a lot or and i'm wondering do you have these people these type of people in your life that kind of thing like how imperative that is to um like institutional transformation like you know you're not going to get there without all of us looking at ourselves you know Mm -hmm.
1: Well, thank you all for those wonderful um, insights and framing of a very difficult question and being vulnerable in this conversation. Mm -hmm. For our listeners, thank you for continuing to listen to us. And over the summer, (laughs) we'll have some reruns of older podcasts for you. But all of us here at the CPET team, thank you for listening and hope that you enjoy your summer in reflections of educational Mm -hmm. issues and preparing for next year.
2: Thanks for leading the way, Matt. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) I think I'll just close this by saying, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, all. Thank you.